KBOO Community Radio is listener-supported. That's right. 80% of our funding comes from donations from listeners just like you. You can always make a donation to help keep KBOO independent and non-commercial at kboo.fm give. But right now, during our end-of-the-year drive, is the perfect time to contribute. Give now and help us reach our goal of $70,000 by December 31st. Make your tax-deductible year-end donation at kboo.fm give today. listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at KBOO. Dot .fm to verify if a meeting is being held. KBOO Community Radio is listener sponsored. That's right. 80% of our funding comes from donations from listeners just like you. You can always donate to keep KBOO independent and non-commercial at kboo.fm/give. Contribute now, and your donation will be matched dollar for dollar up to $10,000, thanks to the generous support of a group of anonymous KBOO donors. Give now and help us reach our goal of $70,000 by December 31st. Make your year-end tax-deductible donation at kboo.fm give today. Welcome to Labor Radio on KBOO Portland. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm L.A. Gillan. Thank you so much for joining us. We would first just like to uh, give a special thanks and shout out to the Labor Radio Podcast Network for hosting podcasted versions of our show each month. Be sure to check that out at laborradionetwork.org. And before getting started, I just want to let you, our listeners, know that KBOO is in the middle of our end-of-year membership fundraising drive. Don't forget that KBOO is commercial-free, volunteer-powered radio made possible by the generosity of amazing listeners like you. And right now, your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar up to $10,000 thanks to the generous support of a group of anonymous donors. Uh, just go to kboo.fm backslash give. And uh, we here at Labor Radio thank you so much for your support. And now on to the topic of today's show. 
Uh, in a blatantly anti-union move earlier this month, first the House and then the U.S. Senate voted to overwhelmingly override the will of thousands of unionized railroad workers. With an 80 to 15 vote in the Senate, they imposed a labor contract that multiple unions representing uh, more than half of all American railroad, railroad workers rejected in November after three years of bitter negotiations. Uh, and in a move that breaks sharply from his uh, generally pro-union rhetoric, President Joe Biden then signed the a piece of legislation finalizing the labor agreement with the rail, rail carriers. Uh, the contract forced by Congress and the White House grants workers meager concessions, including pay raises that apparently when averaged out over time do not actually exceed in the rate of inflation. Um, yet these railroad employees deemed to be essential workers in 2020 have labored in limbo without a contract throughout the COVID pandemic while the unions struggle to negotiate new terms that accurately and fairly reflects their uh, indispensability. At the same time, uh, the contract provides concessions to rail bosses who are determined to maintain what they're calling precision scheduled railroading, which is a relatively new scheduling policy that many workers loathe for prioritizing cost-cutting measures and shareholder returns over the safety and well-being of the workers themselves. This scheduling system has increased demands on employees' time while reducing the industry's workforce by over 40,000 jobs. Uh, and this has meant that workers get to spend less time with their families and are forced to go to work even when sick or otherwise face discipline and even sometimes termination. And I think uh, it's important to note, too, that this policy sounds a lot like the just-in-time kind of innovations that we saw kind of come out of the 2000s and the 2010s. Yeah. And the reason people like Tim Cook are even in charge of Apple, right? Because, you know, Tim Cook was a just-in-time's logistics supply chain guy. And their advantages there were able to take them over to the top. So, you know, this railroad policy shares a lot of things in common with those just-in-time practices and we kind of saw how those were treated when there was any sort of bump right when you reduce your headcount when you kind of put more um uh you, you know you kind of put more on each individual worker to perform yeah these things can kind of slowly break down over time though they are for the bottom line productive and we've seen that no it makes a lot of sense too because like this industry is very much tied in you know, railroading is, you know, first and foremost, how most of our products and, and raw materials get across the country. And so it would make sense that as other industries in this country shift towards that sort of just-in-time uh, production method, they, that would stand that then, of course, the folks who are transporting their goods to them would also need to, to adopt a similar model. Um, but yeah, as it stands now, conductors and engineers are continuously on call. Uh, outside of paid vacation and personal leave days based on that are based on seniority. Uh, and when told to report to work, they're typically given just 90 minutes to arrive uh, before being penalized. And their shifts that they do arrive for can last up to 80 hours. And as one railroad worker explained, quote, that does not include the time that you're sitting at uh, the away from home terminal and you may be away from home subject to the railroad and not with your family for 120 hours in a week. And at BNSF, which I believe is uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, the, the nation's largest rail carrier, which is actually owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, uh, workers there are subject to a draconian, draconian point-based attendance system, 
which results in them getting just one day off each month. Um, and so, yeah, an amendment to the, the strike-breaking legislation was introduced in the Senate by independent Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, which was deemed crucial by union members because it would add seven days of paid sick leave, which is up from the zero paid days of paid sick leave that they currently receive. Uh, that amendment failed uh, with only 52 yes votes, failing, falling short of the 60-vote threshold that is needed to bypass a f uh, filibuster. Now, Sanders, the independent Vermont senator, who also voted no on the, the eventual re resolution that did not include that amendment, um, condemned the, ra the rail industry before the vote, saying, quote, if you want to talk about the excesses of corporate greed, then you've got to talk about the rail industry and what's going on right now. For the rail industry, business has never been better. Record-breaking profits. Uh, but they are one of the few industries in America today that have zero paid sick leave. Unbelievably, if a worker today in the rail industry gets sick, that worker gets a mark for missing work and can, in some cases, will, and can, and in some cases, will, be fired. I don't do a great Bernie voice, but that would have, you know, imagine that in the Bernie Sanders, uh, that Brooklyn mm -hmm. accent. Uh, but yeah, the vote is, is thoroughly unsatisfying, uh, is a thoroughly unsatisfying result for the rail workers who had initially pushed for up to 15 days of paid sick leave, better health benefits overall, and other attendance and schedule-related demands. Uh, the unions and labor advocates have called, have called it a show of both major political parties' unbreakable alliance with capital and the rail industry leaders. Um, and, you know, even if the sick leave amendment had passed, the amendment didn't go as far as some union members had pushed for, um, and workers say that the inclusion of paid sick leave would still not fully address the abusive conditions they face uh, or undo the fact that many Democrats voted to override uh, the will of the unions, and that hurt them. Uh, in fact, Tom Modica, a rail mechanic in Chicago, uh, said, told the Washington Post in an interview that, quote, we carry the country on our backs, whether Congress realizes it or not. The fact that they are willing to force a contract down our throats to keep the railroads from shutting down means that we're important. But they get sick days, and we're out here in the snow all day, and we don't. It's pretty hypocritical. And uh, Jason Doring, who is the General Secretary of Railroad Workers United, which is an independent advocacy group uh, formed of union members, said in a statement just after the president signed the legislation, quote, politicians are happy to voice platitudes to heap praise on us for our heroism throughout the pandemic, the essential nature of our work, the difficulty, uh, difficult and dangerous and demanding conditions of our jobs. Yet, when the steel hits the rail, they back the powerful and wealthy rail carriers every time. And, you know, for his part, it appears that Joe Biden, uh, who has, you know, in the past and continues to claim repeatedly to be, quote, the most pro-union president in American history, uh, President, President Biden decided to very publicly side with management against the rail unions so as not to disrupt, you know, that most holy of American traditions, shopping, especially around the holiday time. Um, and when asked by reporters to explain his decision to sign the legislation, the president said he did so to prevent an economic catastrophe at a very bad time for the, of the calendar. Uh, before changing the subject to boast about job gains and gas, lower gasoline prices. Um, Biden has continued to present his decision as a difficult choice, but the right one for protecting the broader economy ahead of the holidays. And, you know, 
that's that's there's definitely merit to that argument. Like a a shutdown of of rail traffic, especially freight rail traffic in this country, would absolutely uh, grind the economy largely to a halt, or at least severely impact the economy. There's no you know getting around that that fact. Um, and you know uh, advocacy groups for you know business trade groups such as the Chamber of Commerce have put out, have put forward numbers. Uh, regarding like how much how much losses there would be in the economy. Yeah, yeah. The National Chamber of Commerce and a um, an advocacy group sympathetic to the rail management have put out a stat saying that basically the the strike would have resulted in about a two billion dollar loss every single day. Jeez. Um, and you know, obviously, that's not something that either side really wants to see happen. Both from the the, the capital side of it, and also you know. Even the workers, all of their savings and stuff are in the S&P 500 or in these index funds that would obviously be hit by all of these things. So um, ultimately, I mean, it's not really something that we could have handled kind of with the state of the economy. But that being said, I mean, the leverage of the workers was really mm-hmm. strong and they kind of ended up not getting anything. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. You know, I mean, yeah, obviously, even if, you know, the, if you're not talking about these rail workers, just workers in general have pension funds or 401ks, like they would be impacted by a complete shutdown of our economy that would come from shutting down rail traffic. But, you know, the railroad workers, the railroad workers themselves and their unions say that claims by Biden and industry groups like the, the Chamber of Commerce um, that claim that a, a strike or a slowdown would inevitably cause widespread economic damage are, you know, somewhat overblown. And it's possible that the, the numbers, the two billion a day that the Chamber of Commerce put yeah. up may be uh, over-exaggerated number. You know, it's hard to say without this actually coming to fruition. Um, but you know the there's there's you know the counter argument to that or you know the the flip side of that is that railroad unions argue that instead of you know inconveniencing holiday shoppers and focusing on what that would do for this time of the, of the calendar as Biden put it uh, the greater threat is actually from you know workers being on the job for days on end without sufficient time off to see a doctor or taking the time to recover for an Ill- from an illness you know especially as the nation has continued to struggle with COVID-19 and other viruses, as we currently still are and have been for the last three plus years at this point. And in fact, in this past June, a locomotive engineer actually died of a heart attack on the job after missing a doctor's appointment to avoid being penalized by BNSF, um, the railroad that is owned by uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Now, Biden claims to be a longtime supporter of paid sick leave and has in fact pledged to continue fighting for sick leave for these rail workers. Uh, but he has still not proposed any legislation or effective uh, executive actions to that effect. And it just seems like a truly pro-labor president uh, would have you know, started by vetoing this bill or refusing to sign it until carriers committed to providing paid sick leave and not just pushing ahead with what existed. Or honestly, just helping to whip the votes. Right, exactly. Um, I, I think, you know, this to me what has occurred is kind of like the worst case situation of okay we can't really allow this economic impact to hit at this time now yes because of the holiday season but also because i mean the economy in its current state um right and it would be so many jobs and things like that so i i I think everybody kind of understands the the gravity of the situation um and i'm assuming there was a lot of political dealing that happened in the background but clearly this is the worst case situation um and I think you, I think you mentioned like the Chamber of Commerce and things like that, <clears throat> you know. But them coming out also scared away yeah. uh, a lot of Republicans who initially kind of voiced their uh, 
kind of support for the additional sick days. Which is surprising. I mean, like, you wouldn't imagine that that's uh, an issue that really any of the current GOP would be on board for, but apparently there were something, you know, 10 or 11 um, Republican congressmen or con- congresspeople that were... Senators. Senators, yeah, thank you. <laughs> of course. Uh, that, that were, you know, had spoken up and said that they were planning on voting yes, like hard yeses on the amendment. But then the Chamber of Commerce came out and basically said, we're going to be grading all of these senators, giving them a, a, a grade on how they vote on this. And that was enough to scare off a majority of them so that they ended up losing, you know, the, I think they ended up being just six, six of the senators that voted for it. So they lost yeah. potentially, you know, just uh, just under half of the people that were saying they'd vote for it on the, the, the Republican side. And so, yeah, like the, the fact that they were able to be swayed that that easily from it yeah is doesn't bode well for these types of uh, yeah uh, i mean yeah. we won't we won't dive into it here right. but there are a ton of little to large issues that caused us to end up where we're at yeah and that ranges all the way from the negotiations themselves to probably what were bad tactics used by the management side which yeah. we've talked a ton about on this show but then also kind of coming over to when it was first introduced and you know the government stepped in first at the at Congress and then now the Senate is, has voted on it. You know, th- this standoff is now a political point, right? Yeah. And so it kind of gets entered into these different equations that don't really focus on what we're at the end of the day we're really talking about, and that's just equal conditions and kind of standard conditions that all workers should probably have. Yeah. Um, and so again, things get a lot more complicated and muddied, and you know there was a lot of. Republican, in particular, senators who didn't vote for this, kind of on the grounds of saying the government shouldn't get involved. Right. Which I think you can take as you will, as you know, are they really standing for that, or is it more so they just don't want to vote on it because of, right? You start getting into kind of look and outside kind of feelings about things and, right. you know, getting reelected and things like that. So it's a shame that, you know, all of these little kind of mistakes or errors or cracks in the system kind of led us to this point. I think yeah. it's pretty easy to, to scream and yell at Congress and these other things, but we got here because of a lot of also other gigantic problems. Yeah. One of which we'll probably touch on is that these transportation folks are dealt with differently than, right. you know, other types of workers. Yeah. And like, you know, like you were saying, it, it has a lot to do too with like our political culture and our, the climate that, it could be that something as simple as, hey, these blue-collar workers that could be your neighbor, you know, whatever, they don't deserve sick days. You know, I mean, like, that, it yeah. seems like that would be a thing you could sell to any grouping of Americans, you know, regardless of who your constituents are, what, you know, what uh, what office you hold. It seems like whether you're Republican or, or Democrat, that's a thing that could be sold devoid of, of ideology. That could just be a thing like, hey, these workers should be able to take sick time. Yeah. And so the fact that we are at a point where a Republican would be scared off from voting for something as simple as just a few extra sick days mm-hmm. for blue-collar workers means that our political culture, like the the, the climate that our politics exists in, is so broken yeah. that it wasn't going to solve this problem anyways. Yeah, it is important to note as well for the current system that they do have PTO, and they're forced to use that paid time off yeah. for illnesses. And my understanding of the current rules as well is they can take time off for work, but it's unpaid. And then they also take penalties when they come back on those days they took off. So technically they can take days off if they get sick. But again, they are unpaid and they also take a hit for it 
in in the in the scheduling system yeah. going forward. So penalized. it's again, you know, when when Mike talks about you know that rail worker avoiding going to the doctor, he could have taken unpaid days off, but again, on top of that, he's then punished, and so he didn't want to do that, right? Right. And you know, I mean, so along with all of that, like even if just just for the, the part of the Democrats and specifically President Biden, like if it had been the case that he wasn't, you know, as, as was the case, like he wasn't able to whip all the votes on on both the Democratic or the Republican side to get this to pass. But, you know, so if, if it had been, you know, someone who was truly, you know, standing on their pro-union uh, ideals, even in that situation were a strike to, to proceed, a, a truly like pro-labor president would then, instead of, in that situation would, would, would likely, you know, point to all the reasons why it's not actually labor's fault as much as it is the intractability of the position of management. You know, if the dispute ultimately got to a strike and the shutdown and, and shut down the rails, uh, this type of president would use the bully pulpit to blame the industry and its Wall Street shareholders for refusing to concede on, on, on these inhumane scheduling policies. Like that would be the approach of someone who is truly the most pro-labor president of our time, uh, at least, you know, in, in the way that I see it. Um, and so, yeah, we're quickly just going to take a break here uh, and reintroduce the show. Uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Labor Radio here on listener-supported KBOO Community Radio. Uh, we'll be right back with our discussion about strike-breaking efforts within the railroad industry in just a moment. Uh, but I just want to let you know that um, now is actually the perfect time to contribute to KBOO's end-of-year membership drive because a generous group of donors will match your gift one-to-one up to $10,000. Just go to kboo.fm backslash give. Thank you for supporting Community Power Radio. And now back to our discussion of the rail industry and the recent rail um, potential rail strike. Um, so, you know, as it stands, some labor advocates uh, frustrated by Congress's, unwilling, Congress's unwillingness to override the will of workers um, will also while also not granting them basic rights, have discussed the idea of workers going on a wildcat strike, uh, which is basically just an unsanctioned strike. Um, Now, though that may not be improbable, uh, such a move could be difficult and costly to pull off, and it would require defying the law and potentially also their own union leadership. And really, this whole situation has come about because these workers operate, as Elliot mentioned before, under their own industry-specific set of labor laws. Um, if these workers were covered by what the rest of us are covered by, the National Labor Relations Act, or the NLRA, uh, of 19, that came out in 1935, the, the labor, that's the labor law that oversees worker management relations at most of the nation's businesses. Um, and those unions can then threaten to go on strike under, that, under the, those guidelines. Uh, but the Railway Labor Act, which is what this industry operates under, um, under that set of labor laws, Management can always fall back on the hopes that Congress will give them a deal that they want, uh, which is you know more more often than not the actual end result. Now the the Railway Railway Labor Act or the RLA, uh, which was lobbied for heavily by the major railroad barons of the time, was passed uh, basically a decade prior to the NLRA in 1926 uh, as one of the first labor laws um, in in this country, and under the RLA. The federal agency that oversees railroad and airline labor relations is the National Mediation Board, which 
tries to bring the two sides together by setting up a series of limited uh, limits and cooling off periods during which unions cannot go on strike and management cannot lock them out. And if all those efforts fail, then Congress steps in, uh, they're allowed to step in and, and impose a contract under which both sides will have to operate. Um, and uh, in that scenario, workers' ability to strike you know, is, is, of course, the most powerful option that unions have to achieve their goals at the bargaining table, uh, without which they are immediately extremely disadvantaged. And so that is what this basically, this separate set of labor laws takes away from them. And railroad officials will gladly admit that the RLA makes strikes extremely unlikely and, in fact, grants them the upper hand. Um, and so, you know, it, it is something to keep in mind that, like, these workers have basically had their ability to to exert their own power over their workplace stripped from them by a set of laws that applies really only to their specific industry. And it's not like these, you know, these, these big rail carriers are hurting, you know, financially and need to cut every corner to, to make it work. Like, they've actually seen record profits over the pandemic period. Um, and on December 9th, just eight days after the Biden side, the strike-breaking legislation empowering the railroad giants to deny adequate sick leave to their workers, Union Pacific announced a massive dividend to enrich shareholders. Uh, and the industry as a whole has reaped, as I mentioned, record-setting profits over the last few years. Um, and in fact, a recent analysis of the filing, the financial filings of major U.S. railroad companies conducted by a more perfect union reveal that the windfall profits have come at the direct expense of their workforce. 20 years ago, the four leading American freight carriers um, earned an, uh, average operating margins of about 15%. Now those margins are closer to 40%. Um, and with Congress and the White House intervening to break the backs of unions on their behalf, these corporate behemoths now have absolutely no incentive to change their destructive behavior. Um, and this all means that it will likely take a force outside the bounds of our existing polit political and organizing structures to, you know, to keep them from further exploiting their workers. Um, and, you know, to that end, a, a statement by uh, the Railroad Workers United, which is a group mentioned earlier, a group of uh, unaffiliated independent union uh, railroad workers, uh, in that statement, they said that fellow workers should explore other political options, um, such as allying with a third political party, um, now that politicians in both major political parties have proven that they don't have their backs. And they've also said that railroad workers who currently represent, uh, you know, are represented by just a web of roughly a dozen craft unions should consider uniting under this one powerful union. Um, and that, you know, this group, the Railroad Workers United, has also proposed that a public takeover of the rails to break the grips of these private companies. Um, in that statement, they wrote, quote, the fiasco of recent months will show that perhaps the time has come for railroad workers to push for a unified and powerful labor organizing organization of all crafts, together with a political party that will better serve the interests of not just railroad workers, but all working class people. Yeah, and uh, it does seem like, you know, a lot of the rhetoric coming out of these union organizations has been changes coming, right? Like, you know, we're accepting the outcome of this. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the uh, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, or the BLET, ousted their president basically yes. days after um, 
the Senate passed the the amend or the bill to basically keep them from going on strike, uh, and the the, the new uh, BLET president basically came out saying that before uh, you know the Biden bill or the Biden proposition in November, about ninety nine percent of their membership wanted to strike, and they ended up just kind of agreeing to the November amendment. Um, mostly for reasons that had nothing to do with what was in it, but mostly because they were missing back pay. And again, you know, they had been operating without an agreement for over three years. Yeah. And so they basically felt defeated. Uh, And so they, you know, as a result of that, they ousted their, their president. And, you know, I think we're going to see a ton of that happening. Uh, And, you know, five years from now, when this current bill that ends, we could be in a very similar type situation with a union leadership and membership that is charged to not allow the same outcome. Yeah. So, you know, this could be just kind of a pause on a a much larger situation that we'll have to deal with later in the decade. Yeah. Like, it's just kicking the can down the road, it seems. And, you know, that's a really good point that, like, some critics of this may point to the fact that a lot of the unions did sign off on it and workers ultimately, you know, agreed, their their representatives agreed to the the terms of this contract. But, you know, as, as Elliot just said, like, a lot of that has to do with not the fact that they love the contract, rather that they are just tired of not getting the back pay that they deserve, and yeah. they need that money. And so it's like, hey, if they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, they'll just take what they can get rather than not getting anything, especially after three years of slogging through uh, a COVID-riddled mm-hmm. you know, workplace while being, you know... Deemed heroes, but not seeing yeah. any of the benefits of that, not seeing any of the financial or benefit, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible situation all yeah. around. I think the outcome is one that at least we avoid absolute devastation. Yeah. But that's not really any condolence to the people who now have to go back to work under a policy that is crushing them slowly over time, right? So, yeah, I, it's hard. It at least with the current outcome, it's hard to see the positive. Other than it does feel like change is coming, both from a leadership yes. and a membership perspective, and that the unions seem ready to fight yeah. kind of the next time around. Hopefully that is the case. And yeah, I mean, just sort of, uh, just to put a fine point on that, you know, a labor reporter for Labor Notes, Jonah Furman, wrote that, uh, you know, after all of this came out, that people need to understand that we've reached this point in rail bargaining because of a failed union strategy to rely entirely on Democratic Party leadership to get a deal. Uh, and to avoid anything that could threaten this strategy uh, from progressive legislation to going on strike. And so, yeah, ultimately, like, there needs to be a change in what the approach from these union leadership, uh, the the union tactics is in this, and maybe not rely so much on just, hey, well, the Democrats have our back, and maybe try and form, you know, form their own power base by, by joining together as one larger union and figuring out how to exert that collective power as you know, on a, on, a, on a broader scale, into the political uh, system, rather than doing a piecemeal through smaller unions themselves. Um, and you know, just to close out, like the other obvious thing here is that a lot of this would be avoided if we had, you know, if, if there was a, uh, a federal mandate for paid sick leave. Yeah, because that's I mean that would solve so much of this. But of course, that's beyond what our current political system is willing to do. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, none of this will truly be solved until we are able to provide, I mean, first, of course, like, you know, a universal healthcare system, something like Medicare for all, but also a, a just a mandate from the federal government to every single employer that regardless of what industry you're in, that their workers get paid time off if they're sick. That seems like a pretty simple thing, especially considering that right now, according to most recent data, there's about 54... 540,000 workers that are still out due to COVID. And those are just the ones that who've 
actually taken tests that they've reported and are reporting that. So yeah, unfortunately we are out of time and we will continue to follow this story uh, as we already have and we will you know bring this to you as there's updates. But um, yeah, hopefully this can be, you know, this can lead to as a wake said, up call. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for tuning in. This is Labor Radio. I have been Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot.